Welcome to Dinner at the End of the World, a podcast for difficult times. I'm Wendy. And I'm Pinar. And we're part of a group of friends called the Apocalypse Book Club. For the last year and a half, we've been gathering around tables, sharing meals, and together learning to face the end of the world as we know it. So today I'm speaking with one of my very good friends, Risha, who's also known as Sage Frida. She describes herself as an eternally curious, dog-loving, flower-loving, communally healing blogger, poet, and eater of cheese. Welcome, Risha. Thank you, Pinot. I'm so excited to be here. Yeah, me too. Fun fact, Risha is also one of the founding members of the Apocalypse Book Club. A lot of the conversations and the, the, the developing understanding within the book club has been slowly shifting towards the importance of interpersonal relationship and and really understanding how to do that well in a, in a manner that is much more healthy, I think, than the way that we're currently living. Yeah, and maybe maybe just share a bit about your, your journey there and, and what you've learned along the way. <laughs> Especially sharing what I've learned along the way is a daunting prospect, but I can share um, about my journey a little bit. I, I'd say as a teen, and even in my 20s, I was probably the most hopelessly romantic person you would ever encounter and I had a very sort of monogamous ideal in mind um I was always falling in love and envisioning this life that I was going to build with one person and we're going to be happily ever after and etc etc and then a few years ago about four years ago I was in a relationship that was floundering and I really um, started thinking maybe maybe because this keeps happening maybe if we just bring another person into it if I, if I could just outsource my needs, you know, then this relationship could make it. And that was really the first time I started thinking about non-monogamy. And eventually that relationship didn't survive in that romantic form, at least, anyway. But it introduced me to non-monogamy and I started reading up about polyamory and relationships and open relationships and swinging and the works. And none of it totally resonated, but all of it has been really valuable especially my forays into polyamory and all of that and learned many lessons along the way. And eventually I came across the concept of relationship anarchy. And at first, I mean, I knew nothing about anarchy. I thought it just meant complete chaos. But something about that word kept drawing me closer. So I started doing research about it. And it it started out for me as something that just resonates. This idea, because relationship anarchy was first proposed by a person called Andy Nordgren, as far as I know, who published this little anarchist manifesto on relationship anarchy with like ideas like customize your commitments and build for the lovely unexpected. And that really resonated. The idea of instead of trying to apply the old model of romantic relationships onto maybe more than one person in a kind of polyamorous setting, instead taking a step back and going, what do I really want? How do I really want to relate to other people? And what if there were no rules for how it's supposed to be going? What if there's no specific outcome of I meet this person, fall in love, have a baby, move in together? Well, maybe not in that order, but that whole thing. What if I can just reinvent it? And what if we can customize every commitment we have? So that's where it started for me. And there's a lot I can say about that. But eventually, that really brought me to, it became both surprisingly political and intensely personal. 
So it started out as a journey into interpersonal relationship exploration. And finally, it became both a much wider way for me of understanding the world and a much more personal way because it eventually brought me all the way back to thinking about what I want. What do I really want? How do I, how can I dismantle not only the hierarchies outside in my world, but the ones in my head to really sit with what I desire and then to ask for that and to negotiate for that. And so surprisingly, instead of a few years down the line now having, I don't know, three romantic relationships on the go at the same time and some other polyamorous lifestyle, what it really has done for me instead is that it's made me much more self-aware. It's caused me to be much more honest with myself and to really approach every relationship with a sense of curiosity. Sure. Does that answer your question? It's very wide. No, I think that, that you're sowing some interesting seeds um, that will hopefully bloom into some beautiful flowers. And I think what, why this is important is that, I mean, we've, in the, in the previous episode, we've started just touching upon these different ways that, that we might need to shift our culture as a response to all the different ways that society is unraveling around us and, and really trying to hold this question of like, how do we live new ways into being? Mm. Um, and I think this really gets to the, the, the heart of the matter because the, all of these larger systems are at the end of the day comprised of interpersonal relationships. And I think that there's some interesting um, relationships between the way that you interact with individual people and yes. the, the largest and how that is connected to larger systems. Absolutely. And I think with um, romantic relationships specifically, there's a lot of, of baggage and ideas and assumptions that we get socialized into that don't necessarily have to exist. And obviously those, those systems that we are socialized in produce a certain kind of society and a certain kind of relationship. And yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm very interested to, to hear how you've unpacked some of those interrelationships and, you know, the connection between personal relationships and larger political systems, maybe. Oh, sure. I think I could start by saying that when I was doing research about relationship anarchy a while ago, I wanted to write a blog post about it and I started doing research about it and I came across something that Noam Chomsky said about anarchy. And he said, basic principle of anarchy is distrust all power. All power is illegitimate unless proven otherwise. And then the second thing that the second principle of anarchy itself is that humans have the capacity to cooperate and build something meaningful if if needs be. So on the one hand there's like distrust all power unless it's proven legitimate of course and build something meaningful together. And that was the first time that I thought ooh maybe relationship anarchy isn't just relationship anarchy. Maybe I can think about this in a bigger way. Because what I really liked about that distrust all power for me is that very often we don't know what we don't know. We don't know that we're not free, but we only have one or two options. And I think what I desire at heart, and I think what many people do, is really to have, oh, what's that word? Agency? Age, yeah, I, I guess agency. I was thinking specifically of to have freedom mm -hmm. and 
can we really have that in a world where our imagination is even limited? Sure. So, <laughs> romantically, that's very clear. And I think that's why I started with relationship anarchy and then expanded from there. Romantically, there aren't many options. It's either you fall in love and follow the so-called relationship escalator or you're so-called single. It's either you build a family with one person and you have a nuclear family or you choose not to have children. But all of a sudden I was like, oh, but what? how about all the other possibilities? What about crafting a constantly moving kind of setup where perhaps you have lifelong friendships where you raise children with those people and you have other relatings, other connections that come and go that might be intense, that might be passionate, that might be interesting, that might be work-related or creativity-related and that none necessarily have a higher importance. Some might, you might invest more time or energy into some relationships because it feels good, but not because it necessarily, by dint of being, merits having more time invested into it. Does that make sense? Sure, yeah. And you touch on something that I, I, I want to pause at, and it's this idea of expanding our imaginations mm. um, about what is possible for our lives. I think so much of the conversations we have at the book club and I also think the entire purpose of this podcast really is to really explore other options that might not, that might, we might think are not available to us because of this way that our imagination has been limited. Yeah. And that, that the first step to creating an, to living into different kinds of culture is, is first to imagine it, to know that it exists and that it is possible. And I think that's really hard because we mm. don't know what there is to imagine. It's very hard to conjure up something out of thin air if you've never seen it anywhere before. So I found myself um, having slowly let go of the more traditional romantic dream. I find myself often replacing that with simply more convoluted but subtly hierarchical dreams nonetheless. Like for instance, <laughs> now every time I even have the slightest crush on someone... The daydream that happens for me is, ooh, we're all going to live on this big intentional community and I'm going to have three lovers coming in and out and we're going to have drumming circles around the fire and I'm going to raise two kids with, like, the whole group. But it's still, it's, is it really what I want? Or is it just the, the replacement I've invented for the other picture? Something that I'm able to envision but not necessarily what I want. Mm -hmm. I, I don't know, but I know it's moving closer as we keep imagining, as we keep making up new stories, because we're always going to make stories, we're always going to attach a story to something that's happening, at least it's moving me closer to understanding what it is I want. But I think it's very hard. It's a constant process, this reimagining thing. It doesn't just happen overnight. I think you do something, you experience something different, you check in with yourself, how does this feel? So in, in terms of relating, to ground it a little bit, maybe I try and be let's say two totally parallel romantic relationships maybe i try that and then i ask myself how does that feel to have two concurrent parallel equally slightly equally romantic relationships Ooh, no actually i don't like that oh actually maybe i do want to share my living space with someone or actually maybe i don't so i think for our imagination to really be able to expand we need to expand our experimentation as well if that makes sense not necessarily on the romantic or no in this sphere, it could be in any sphere. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And how how has other people in your life resisted this experimentation? 
I can imagine that that it's 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 sometimes not easy trying to break these boundaries because it 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 is such unquestioned fundamental principles of most of our upbringings. Yeah. So I mean, how is how have you interacted with other people with the with these ideas and and how have you lived them out? Oh, that's interesting. I've never actually been asked that before. So I think many people who know me think, oh well, she's just doing a weird thing again. It's a phase. Or people sometimes experience this as just the need to be different. <laughs> oh, you're just trying to be mm. different, and why can't you just go with the things that are like the the patterns, the ways of being, the ways of relating that are established are obviously established for good reason. Why would you want to change them? And I disagree with that assumption. Like I don't think just because something has been around for a long time that it's necessarily a good and healthy thing. But I do think that surprisingly, most, of, at least my close friends, like for instance, you guys in, in the Apocalypse Book Club and many of my other friends as well as my family have been curious and open and wise and have given me lots of information and it's been a give and take of hearing other people's take on it. And um, yeah, like I said before, it's not according to me just a thing about romantic relationships. It's definitely not a model of non-monogamy. I think two people can, for instance, identify as relationship anarchists and also decide that monogamy practically works for them, that they haven't got the energy or the resources to be in more than one of this type of relationship. So for me, it's it's about all kinds of interactions. Mm, okay. um, and yeah. in that sense, I have learned a lot from the people around me, such as from you, for instance, and the, the conversations we've had. Yeah, we've had some interesting conversations around this topic in, in the book club. I know that, that a lot of our, our questions are around like, how do we build community? And one of the big stumbling blocks, I think, to that is this nuclear family ideal that most people are, are running around with. And I've, I've seen this with, with my own friends. The moment that they're in a relationship, they completely, completely remove themselves from the friendship or yes. they just become, they no longer prioritize. Um, friendship connections and and I think it, once you once you get married and you have children that that becomes even even more pronounced where you're almost I don't know circling the wagons around this like teeny tiny little mm. mini community and nothing else outside of that really matters and I think it's you know it's fucked up a lot of different things like it, it means that that all other other forms of relating become less important and so I think we're missing out on so many d- so many other rich ways of interacting. Yeah, and I, and I think it, it specifically, I think, leaves out the, the queer community. Yeah. Um, because mostly, that for or at least for a very long time, they don't have the opportunity to be in romantic relationships. I mean, this was definitely true for me, where throughout most of high school, and honestly, like most of, of university, I wasn't in a relationship. And I think maybe because of that, I've I've always tried to pursue friendships in a much more deeper, um, more intimate way. I almost feel almost feel like this is still how I think about my friendships is that like the the same level of emotional intimacy that I would want with a romantic partner, I would want with a friend as well, and that the romantic aspect is is just brings in that physical connection too. But whew, it's finding finding other people that that think in the same way and that are willing to to expose themselves to potential hurt at least in my experience has been very rare yeah 
Um, it's definitely something I've learned from you, and we, we discussed this earlier, but I want to bring that up again, where I, I had a recent moment with a close friend. He said something that, that hurt me and that I didn't feel good about, and I let it go because I was like, I mean, it wasn't even conscious in that moment, but what was really happening in my mind was this is not worth the conflict of bringing it up. I don't actually feel that invested in this friendship. And I realized afterwards that the almost the only relationships where I'm invested enough to actually call somebody out when they said something that feels uncomfortable or hurtful for me is my romantic relationships. In other words, I have this unconscious hierarchy in my mind still that I will only put in that level of effort with my lovers instead of my platonic friends. And I actually, when it happened, I told you about it and you said that you experienced it very differently and you brought up exactly what you said now, that you want the same level of emotional intimacy in your friendships than in your romantic relationships, which really struck me because that had been in my mind, but it, I hadn't realized how unconsciously I was still prioritizing mm -hmm. specific relationships more than others. And that's, that's what's so interesting because I'm the one who runs around calling myself a relationship anarchist. And then you say something which I think is profoundly relationship anarchist. And I learn from it and realize, oh, I still have that to dismantle. And that dismantling, again, every time enables us to expand what we can then imagine. Exactly, sure. But I think, I mean... It is also very difficult, and I think this is one of the reasons why it's maybe not more common that if I just think like the the amount of effort and work that you have to put into a romantic relationship to make it work, I think is significant. And if you want to have that same level of intimacy with friends, you have to put in the same level of work and care and attention. And I think that's that is exhausting. Yes. Um, but obviously the, the payoff is, is so much larger than that, that it's completely worth it. But, and this goes back to imagination. Like if you haven't yet tasted that reward, because the reward, you only see that on the long term, then why would you put in that effort initially? I've seen people be stuck in that cycle of, I think subconsciously maybe wanting that intimacy, but not being able to connect with people because they don't even think that it's possible or worth the, the pain and effort. Mm. Um, and that is, is also maybe something that, that we don't like to acknowledge. It is sometimes painful. It's sometimes difficult because you have to struggle with people. You can't just give up after a couple of, of, of instances of, of, of conflict. Absolutely. Yeah. Relationships, all of them especially when they're close, when they're deep, when they're long-term, even when they're short-term, are hard. <laughs> and they take resources. And I think, so on the one hand, we have, you know, the sky is the limit. What are you able to imagine? And on the other hand, we have, here are limited resources. You only have this much energy. You only have this much mm. time. And But that's the beauty of it. It's, and that's why I said at the beginning, it brought me back to me. What do I really want? Because I might start, and this happens for me a lot, I just want to be friends with everyone <laughs> and just invite everyone to everything and say yes to every invitation. And then at one point realize, ooh, I have made or appeared to have made commitments to friendships that I don't feel that alive in. And now I need to sort of backtrack. 
So relationship anarchy doesn't mean, or not to me at least, it doesn't mean indiscriminate, just everybody gets to be my bestie, but rather it, it forces you to be honest with yourself. Where do I want to invest this limited time and energy? If I take away the assumptions that it's going to be in my romantic relationships, then where will it be? With which people? Whom do I want to build something with? And where maybe do I want to de-escalate things? Where do I want to take a step back? And that that's not an admission of failure. That's just the next phase of that friendship or that relationship. And it's, I think it's, it's important that time and resources are limited. And it's the same in other spheres of life. It's not just the sky's the limit. It's also how can I make that fit in a world where things are limited, where not everybody agrees with me and lives in the same way that I do. How do I make that fit? How do I compromise? How do I work with it? This brings up another very important point, I think. In the past, I've been frustrated with friends that haven't I felt like they weren't making enough time for me. And in the same sense, I've felt very guilty for not making enough time for friendships that I did want to invest in. And I think this conversation of of time and energy and resources is very important here because I think it it forms part of a larger conversation how I think society and work and our lives are structured in such a way that is actually inherently dehumanizing because it doesn't make space for the natural, like life-affirming relationships that we need. Um, mm. And that is also, I think, one of the reasons why romantic, like single monogamous romantic relationships are so common, is that for most people, they don't have enough time or energy to invest in more than literally one person. Um, mm. And I think this really... This point was really hammered home for me when I when I started working, which yeah, is quite recent, like in 2019. And it's, it was quite a shock, I think, realizing how constrained you are in terms of your available energy. And I was all of a sudden in this space where like, I realized that if I wanted to have a, like a healthy life that's well-balanced, and that, like, but also feeds this like, intense need for community, that I was going to have to prioritize and, and prune a lot of relationships and I'm still, you know, I'm still grieving about that mm. because I know in a, in a, if I, if I lived in a different world, I would have been able to connect to so many more people and to deepen the connections I already have. But the constant demand of time that goes into just making a living takes away so much of that energy. Yeah, that's really profound. And I love the way that you said that you are still grieving that because well, that that's really beautiful because grief means an acknowledgement that this is not how things could have been or could be. Mm. It means seeing that this is not the only option. You can only grieve for something that you know you've lost or don't have, you know. So that's the first step maybe in, in imagining a different life is seeing that the one we've got is not the only option and grieving for that. Mm. And then also realizing that in our lifetimes maybe it's never going to be ideal so this this work thing yeah just it's it's something i think about a lot as well like spending eight hours a day at least very often Mm. (laughs) a a day just scrabbling for survival Mm. and then fitting in your close relationships in in the little 
nooks and crannies of your life, that that feels dehumanizing, like you said. And but then we have to ask ourselves, what are the alternatives? Because, and I, I said this to you earlier. I don't know if this is an okay tangent to go off on. I'm just going to do it. Do it. <laughs> um, I I feel like we often get given this false dichotomy of like it's either grunt work, you work for the man. You suffer, you do your eight hours every day, it sucks, but, you know, that's capitalism for you. Or then you have this whole manifest your dream life type thinking, which is very on Instagram and all of the influencers that go, everything is available to you as long as you write it in your dream journal and then manifest it. And you can have pots of money and just, you know, think harder, try harder. Basically, that's try harder. Mm -hmm. And I think that's still profoundly individualist, capitalist thinking because it's still about manifest money and do it from like the sweat of your brow or the sweat of your manifestation at least. And yeah, they're both actually the same thing. Yes. The, those two options. The one is just the glamorized Instagram version and the other mm. one is the sort of like quote-unquote more practical or you know, utilitarian way of looking at it. Both are also really focused on career as the thing mm. you want to build. Mm. But I've more and more come to realize that, and I'd love to hear your opinion on ambition, but I've more and more come to realize that in terms of work, I don't feel very ambitious. What I would really want is to have enough money to pay the rent and feed my dog, and then enough time to spend with friends, with creative projects, with the soil, planting things, and going on long walks and playing the ukulele. Even if that means that my job is unimpressive and low-paying, as long as I make, you know, cut even. Is that the right expression? Um, break even. Break even, thank break you. Even. <laughs> um, and so I've realized, at least in the traditional sense of the word, I'm not ambitious. And that's so freeing. Like, can, how can we reimagine work if we're not working for work, if, we, if the other things are our goals? Mm -hmm. So I'd love to hear your take on that. I mean, honestly, that sounds a lot more ambitious to me, hmm. at least in the sense that if your, if your ambition is to be successful in your career, that path is already well trodden and laid out for you. And also you have a lot of social support to make that happen. If you're telling people, Oh, like I'm working so much, like I'm putting in the effort, putting in the time because I, I want to achieve this goal. There are very few people out there that's going to say, Oh no, that's stupid. But if you're saying, Oh, actually, I, want to invest in community, I want to invest in people in the earth, in in making a home for myself and living a good life, there's almost less of there's less support for that, I think. And that's ambitious. In mm -hmm. to to have the courage to set out and, and carve your own path. Yeah, I, I think this is a very important point that and I I'm always awestruck by how intricately connected all these different aspects are that in order to invest more in relationships, you do need to de-emphasize work or at least not be willing to, to offer up your entire life for a specific job or a specific career path. And, and that automatically also means that you maybe have less money to spend on thing, on consumerist things, right? So you, you're automatically living with less and you're automatically then having to not focus so much on material goods and, and, um, and things, and that's reducing your impact on the planet. Mm. And that also means then you have more time to spend with people, which is 
changing your focus to the, the interpersonal. And that might also lead you to a more spiritual path or a spiritual understanding, which then also leads you to be <laughs> less likely to invest in career, invest in the, in the, the sort of conventional system of things. And it's, it also makes it more difficult because you, you, you do sort of have to, it's a chicken and egg situation. You sort of have to make these small adjustments in all different aspects of your life. But the, I think the, the, the good thing also is that it can happen gradually and slowly and organically. Because again, that's, that's one of the, the logics that's used to really keep people in line is this idea that if you're not completely living your dream right away, right. then you're not living it. There's something wrong. You're not doing it right. Like there's only these two options, as you mentioned, right? And that this logic of everything or nothing is part of the capitalistic system. It's part of this, this, this way of thinking that, that actually prevents us from, from productively moving forward. That brings up something I was thinking about this morning, and that's the concept of potential. So I think, and this is linked to capitalism, but it goes really deep. I know it goes really deep for me, this, this idea, like you said, about if you're not doing everything and living your best life, then you, you've failed. But I think for me that goes to, that speaks to this idea that I have and that many people have, that if you're not um, living up to your own personal potential, you're failing. Mm. And... Um, that can be completely debilitating and, and also play right into the hands of capitalism again. Because now you go, oh, I have this talent and I have this talent and I'm not expanding on it. I should be. It's my, it's my calling, you know. If I, if I have a musical talent or a writing talent or whatever it is and I'm not um, expanding that, um, that goes right all the way back to the Bible where Jesus said about the guy <laughs> who buried his talents and didn't um, get a reward from God because his talents didn't increase. Mm. And I think that's been co-opted by capitalism, really. And yeah. I know that if I can, I tell a, a thing that, that really changed my mm. thinking about this. It was a few years ago, I applied to do a master's in creative writing, um, specifically for poetry. And I sent in my little poetry portfolio and I knew that uh, intakes were limited, but I was like tentatively optimistic about my chances. And then I wasn't accepted. And the first feeling that I had was embarrassment. Um, that sense of, oh, I drastically overestimated my own talent. <laughs> and those people, the, whoever had to, the selection committee probably sat there looking at my poems, feeling a little bit sorry, you know, oh, this poor girl, she thinks she can write. But then the moment that embarrassment passed, I just felt this immense sense of freedom because I realized that I'd been carrying around without knowing it, this idea that I was supposed to do something with my talent. I was meant to go and write, that it was my God-given duty to build on this and educate myself and publish a book or a novel, I don't know what. All of a sudden, because the selection committee told me, no thanks, I was completely free, and now I could reimagine what I want to do with writing. Do I just want to put up a random poem on Instagram every now and again, or just blog for five readers, or just put out little thought bubbles and bursts out into the world and just make little things that make me happy. And it was so freeing not to be a slave to potential anymore. Mm, sure. And obviously, if you're not 
monetarily exploiting your potential, then ha- then you haven't reached your full potential. Right. That's the way it's always framed. Mm. But there's so many other ways that you can do that. Mm. Um, yeah, so many different things. I, th- I think going back to that metaphor of sowing seeds, I think this has been very accurate. There's so many ideas here that I think we can explore, but I want to I want to take it back again to relationship anarchy. I may be thinking about like let's say there's a listener who is already married. They're in a monogamous relationship. They're very happy and comfortable with that fact. They have children. They have this busy life. Like how? What are the small steps that you can give someone like that and say like what are the like the small ways that you can maybe expand your horizons a little bit or if you want to explore principles of relationship anarchy within this framework that you already find yourself like what oh that's yeah, well, interesting what's there to do? never thought of mm. that um well i would say first of all if you're happy with the relationships that you have then you don't have to impose any change on them but you might ask yourself am i really happy with the relationships mm. as they stand or is it just that you know these are the things that i was meant to want and now i have them so i suppose everything is fine then um and that doesn't mean change everything it can just mean being open to the possibility that you you are allowed to renegotiate things things as tiny as oh maybe i've been married to this person for 20 years but actually i'd like my own bedroom like <laughs> or i'd like to li- i'd like to live in a in the next door house you know and we can like it can be something like that or it can just simply be applied to your other relationships the new ones that you get that come come about in the meantime your friendships you can ask yourself about how emotionally close would you get to your friends if there wasn't this weird and popular concept of emotional cheating for instance (laughs) i always find that so strange this thing of if you're really close to somebody of the opposite gender if you're heterosexual then you're emotionally cheating um committing emotional (laughs) adultery so what how close would you be to people and to whom would you be close if you could, and how would you approach your children differently? Maybe thinking about um, really respecting their free will and, and all the millions of tiny ways that children can sometimes be coerced into things. Sure. <laughs> that is a whole other conversation. <laughs> that is a whole that. other conversation. <laughs> but yeah, just, I, think, I think it can be just a subtle stopping and looking at your life every now and again and going, is this what I want? How does it feel? to try and feel what I want. Yeah, yeah and, and this touches, I think, maybe like a very accessible place, at least for me, is like around gender roles. Mm. Um, mm. Because a lot, of the, a lot of the ways that we interact with each other is very gendered. This idea that, that we are only allowed to perform certain functions within a relationship because of our gender. And, and maybe also the, the expectation to, to cut off certain aspects of ourselves because of because of gender and I, th- I think if, if and specifically if we're talking about like deep emotional friendships I think personally that's something that that anyone and everyone can can benefit from but I also think that that you know like especially men maybe need more avenues for like deep emotional friendship hmm. and just in general so like not not having to rely on every single thing from your from your romantic partner understanding that they physically can't fulfill all the needs that you have like as humans we are complex we are varied we're yeah and and changing with every day and every season and 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 expecting that one person to always be ready and there 
for all aspects of yourself, I think is is very unrealistic and and allowing allowing friends to to take up some of that slack and provide that that same support for for yes. our friends in turn. I think it's very important. That was probably the biggest life changer for me in this whole journey was just that simple realization that oh my romantic partner doesn't have to be everything to me and it's valid and beautiful that I have other needs that they can't and don't want to fulfill and that they do too and like oh but there's this wonderful spectrum of people out there that I can connect with on different levels and just oh the lightening of pressure yeah Yeah, and that like that that excites me just this is the same as how what we just said about work. The lightening of pressure when you realize your career doesn't have to be a career necessarily. You can also make small plans. It can be just getting by in a myriad ways. And I, and I do know that I'm. I speak from a privileged position because I can, I can scrabble along and make a plan here and do this and work online and and have all sorts of ideas. And not everybody has that available to them. But if we do. What a relief to know that we don't have to automatically just find perfect and wonderful fulfillment and wealth in a career or in a partner. Yeah, that's very true. And the and all the ways that I think that that we develop as human beings um, through other people. I was also just thinking mm-hmm. back on like the the manner or the the level that I've grown spiritually, emotionally mentally is almost entirely because of the friendships that I've made over the past couple of years. Me too. Um, and that's only really happened, like I would say maybe since for the last maybe five years. And it's just been astronomical change and growth. And yeah, and, it, and it's, I can't imagine a world where I can't go to someone with my problems. I can't like just having the space to sit down and talk through the things that are going on in my life has been immensely important mm. and things have shifted that I previously would never have imagined or able even to shift. But just having that space again and again, having a, a, a welcoming, safe environment to just talk through the things that are going on in your life has mm. been phenomenal. Yeah, to me too. It's my hope to, that I think it's my hope that that everyone out there has access to that kind of space, and I, and I don't think that that is the case. And I think with, I mean, with coronavirus, it's it's for me that was that was a very clear line in the sand that was drawn between people that are living relationally and those that are either intentionally or unintentionally stuck within this paradigm of of individualism, where you have friends that haven't left their houses for the last like a year and a half almost and that are extremely lonely and depressed and drowning in that loneliness and where I find myself saying, I understand that there's a risk, I understand that, that I could potentially put myself in danger by doing this, but seeing my friends is literally something that will keep me alive. Yes. And... For me, coronavirus has just again and again and again emphasized the importance mm. of human level, face to face, constant contact for mental health, for physical health, for just social well being in general. And 
I never want to live in a world where that's not possible. Me neither. It's really brought, it's really made that really mm. clear. What's really important, and that's our relationships. Yeah. Being seen, seeing. And, and all the, the, the subtle physiological communication that happens while you're in the physical presence of another pe- person. You don't get that over Zoom. Um, and I think what I, what I find very distressing is, is how it seems that a lot of people haven't come to that same conclusion where we're, we're seeing more and more a shift towards online spaces. Oh, we can just do this over Zoom. We can, we can connect like that. We can play like that. We can work like that. And I am not willing to do it. Yeah, I, 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 mm-hmm. I don't want I don't want to live in a world where that is the the, mm-hmm. the primary way how how we we form and, and maintain relationship. Yeah, I wonder. I wonder if if the people who who do think let's move everything online are the people who already who don't live by themselves, who already have a nuclear family or so, or a group mm-hmm. of people who yeah. do touch them on the mm-hmm. regular that they make eye contact mm-hmm. with, and that this really brought. The disparate, like the, the hierarchy in stark relief, like the people who do live by themselves and need that human connection have come mm. to value it so much more. Um, because they, you know, yeah. they don't have it on, on a regular basis. Yeah. Sure. That, I think that's also very true, is that the, the people that have fallen by the wayside in this have been so-called single people or people that live by themselves. Yeah. And, and those in... in in these nuclear relationships have just they they have had the luxury to shut their doors and keep everyone else outside. But those not in those spaces didn't have that and can't have that. Um but I also yeah, I, I think we need to move towards a society where that option is not possible, where we That's are cool. able to embrace everyone, no matter what level of relationship they choose to to live in. Uh, that just brings it back to the thing mm. that you said earlier about the nuclear family, because like for our for us to be healthy, our community needs to be healthy, our society needs to be healthy. Mm. So we can't prioritize just the nuclear family above the well-being of other humans, because mm. then the society mm. at large will not be healthy. And I think that's the danger of this kind of insular nuclearity. Me and mine are fine. Like no, you and yours will not be fine <laughs> if everybody else is not fine. Yeah. Yeah, and even even if if such like such an arrangement appears fine, I don't think it can be fine in the long term. Yeah, it's not a sustainable model of interaction. And I mean, we can we can have like whole episodes probably on like family trauma and childhood trauma and the way that like the unhealthy ways that that parents and children interact with each other and the way that that also shapes us later in our life. Oh, that would be so interesting. Yeah, I think I'm so curious to see what a truly communal yeah, community looks like, that where relationships aren't, pro- I don't want to say not prioritized, but where non-familial and non-romantic relationships are valued on the yes. same level as familial and romantic relationships. Oh, so again, it's all about... What can we imagine? <laughs> Coming full circle once again. <laughs> Yo, so many different topics that we discussed. I think that, that this is maybe a, a first conversation of many. I think we will definitely unpack the different topics in more depth 
at a later stage. But I think this this really sets the foundation for those conversations. Yeah, so thank you so much for joining me, Isha. I think this was a wonderful conversation. Thank you for letting me be here and just talk my heart out. Thank you so much. (laughs) Um, So I I look forward to having more amazing chats with you in the future. Me too. Thank you, Pinar.